0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we're going to read verses 1 through 18, which is the whole chapter, so if you would, uh, just 1 through 10, all right, thank you Daniel, we'll read 1 through 10, we won't read the whole chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, please listen to God's Word. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, and the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live and after they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten." Their love and their hate and their envy have all already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that He has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Good morning, everyone. Uh, Once again, we're in Ecclesiastes. And we're returning to a cheerful theme, the inevitability of death. Unfortunately, it will not be the last time that the preacher has something to say about death. The first part of chapter 9 has been referred to as the most pessimistic passage in the entire book. But it ends on a more optimistic note which prepares us for the positive elements of the following three chapters of this book, some of our more favorite verses of Ecclesiastes. In the preacher's pursuit of a concise meaning to life, he's reached a roadblock, the inescapability of death. After all, he comes to this conclusion, the only way to truly live is to be prepared to die. So what is covered in the passage this morning, is three main themes that uh, everyone will die, the righteous and the wicked alike. The advantage of the living over the dead is that the living know that they will die and can live more fully because of that knowledge. And as a consequence, those among the living should enjoy a life that God has made available to them. How people deal with the reality of death, reveals itself in the way they handle the realities of life. So there's three things I want to talk about this morning, that death is coming for everyone, hope is available for the living, and life is meaningful when it's enjoyed. Those three things this morning. So first, death is coming for everyone. Ecclesiastes 9.1, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. The preacher here at the beginning says, So, all this I laid to heart. And this is a Hebrew connecting word that connects the beginning of this chapter as a continuation of the thoughts that were in chapter 8. So, if we look back, we see what they were talking about there, that even the wise cannot know the mind of God. In the same way that we cannot know the mind of God, we also don't fully know what the outcome of our actions is going to be. In God's sovereignty, even our deeds are in the hand of God. This is a very humbling perspective, right? That you don't know what the fullest outcome of your actions will be. And maybe you've heard of the butterfly effect, when a small change can lead to a large and unexpected outcome. So you buy a red car because you like the color, and then you get pulled over because red cars get pulled over more often than other colored cars, saving you from being in a serious car wreck ahead on the highway. We can't see all of these things. We don't know the path that's laid before us. But God knows not only what is his will, but what, how our actions and the responsibilities that we have in those actions, what that leads to. The very definition of God's sovereignty is that nothing is out of his hands. The preacher here says that whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. What this means is that we're not sure even what God is doing. Are these actions toward us? Is this God's love or is this out of uh, God's response to to sin? Uh, You can't use the good and bad events in your life as a criteria to decide whether God loves you or God hates you because our life is always a mixture of good things and bad things. Troubles come, and it's easy to ask, what have I done to deserve this? But the preacher would have us ask ourselves that same thing when good things come our way. What have you done to deserve this? All people experience the whole range of events in their lives. Sunshine and shade, calm and storm, prosperity and adversity, joy and sorrow. And apparently there is no discrimination in the distribution of good and evil. Earthquakes, tornadoes, and hurricanes, they make no discrimination between good people and evil. Calamities do not indicate that a person is some great sinner. Neither does prosperity indicate that one is a child of God. Outward circumstances are no measure of a person's heart. This is what all of Job's friends are arguing about. Job's life was falling apart, so he must have done something to deserve it. That was their perspective of his life, but it wasn't accurate. Job had done nothing wrong. Rather, he was being divinely tested by God. And verse 1 here, Ecclesiastes 9, establishes the idea that all that will happen to you, all that will shape your future, it's obscure and it's unknown and beyond your control. Everything is up to God. And then verse 2 says, it's the same for all, since the same event happens to everyone. Now, this same event that happens to everyone is death. Death comes for everyone. In the Google calendar of your life, there is an unspecified date with an event labeled the end. You don't know where it is, but it's there. It's the great equalizer. It comes to everyone. The preacher then uses six sets of comparison to make this point clear. He says, Death comes to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is he who shuns an oath. These comparisons, they didn't exist at the beginning of the Bible. If we go back and we think about what was there. God created man with a hope of immortality. Adam and Eve were granted full access to the tree of life, but human disobedience resulted in limitation, and it resulted in this tension, these comparisons. Life would continue. All people would eventually die. This seems to be what the preacher also has in view. Look at verse 3 when he says, this is Unevil in all that is done under the sun, that death happens to all. The ESV translates unevil, but in the original language here, it, there's a much more definite sense of evil. So the bad or the evil. The, the evil that happens in the world is that people die. Death is the singular tragedy that zoom, that looms ahead of everyone. The preacher says that also the the hearts of the children of man, literally in the the Hebrew, ben adam, the the sons of Adam, they're full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. To summarize these first three verses, we don't know the consequences of our actions, we don't know why good or bad things happen to us, but we do know this, we live in irrational sin-filled lives and then we die. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord, right? (laughs) But seriously, think how this must have sounded to the Jews that are reading this uh, at this time. Your sacrifices and your festivals, it it doesn't matter. They're pointless. Uh, You're just going to have to do them again next year. And you don't even know what the outcome of them is. Are you making God happy? You don't know. Uh, Is this fixing your problem? Is this going to some way alleviate death or provide a hope for the future? You don't know. That there's no guarantee in these actions. And so the preacher here is saying, you're really no better off in your perspective than the unrighteous because death is coming for everyone. But, the preacher says, there is hope available to the living. Look at verse 4. But there is hope for whoever is joined with all the living, since a live dog is better than a dead lion. In the Peanuts comic strip, Charlie Brown reads this verse to Snoopy, and Snoopy says, well, I don't know what this means, but I agree with it. (laughs) In the Bible times, a dog, they weren't household companions like they are today. They were scavengers, mostly fed on dead bodies. They were despised animals. To call someone a dog was a derogatory term. The lion, on the other hand, Was seen as a noble and praiseworthy hunter. What this means is that all the wisdom and the wealth in the world means nothing if you're dead. And even the most despised member of society has an advantage while there is still hope in his life. There's a potential for things to turn around. Read verses five and six. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Cut off from the world, even the memory of people is forgotten. Think about those in your family who have died. What were their favorite books? Uh, Who bullied them when they were a kid? Uh, What was a place that they wanted to visit but they never had the chance? See, there's memories that last but Not all of it, not everything about people. We're not able to preserve all of those things. Even the way people remember us, it fades with every generation. For them, love, hate, ambition, all are now over. These things are the strongest emotional efforts that people can have when they're alive. Love and hate and envy, these are strong emotions in Scripture. But they can't return to this life to do or undo what those motions actually accomplish. The dead have not even the poor reward of being remembered by a loving posterity. This is very important, a desired thing that you would be remembered and cherished by your descendants. The whole point of this gloomy paragraph is this. You know that one day you will die, and that's a good thing. Because it motivates how you truly live. But fully, to fully understand this passage, it's important for us to realize that our knowledge of life after death depends on how much God has revealed to us. Everyone on earth has an understanding that they will die one day. That's what we call general revelation. Uh, these are some things that are based on our, our own ability and our own experience. We can know these things to be true. Uh, Remember also in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put a sense of eternity in everyone's heart. So everyone knows in their bones that there's something after death, even if they don't know what that means. But God has revealed through his word and through Jesus that there is life beyond this mortal life. This is what we call special revelation, something that we could never know based on our own abilities. Jesus claims to be the supreme authority of special revelation because no one has seen God face to face but him. John 5, 24, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus makes this point again in Matthew 22 in an answer to the Sadducees concerning God as the continuing and forever God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when he says that God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. That even for these that have seemingly passed on and died, that there's still a continuation. He is still a God of these, and he is still a God of us. That those of us who are living live before God in this way. Between the dead and the living, though, there's this impassable gulf. This is the conclusion the preacher reaches when he looks at death. Without the benefit of special revelation, you don't know. You don't know what God expects. You don't know how to get there. You have this sense that there's something else, but you don't know what it takes to actually get there. The special revelation of the gospel, though, it brings life and immortality to light for us. 2 Timothy 1.10 says this, This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In Christ, there is a hope for immortality once more. In Revelation, the picture of the tree of life, it's there again with access to those who have passed Uh, into heaven and eternity. In Christ, there is hope for immortality. But how does Ecclesiastes say that we should live in the meantime? While there is life, there is hope. But hope for what? What's our motivation in this life? Surely, in light of this book, there is hope for living life to its fullest. And the last point is this. Life is meaningful when it is enjoyed. Life is meaningful when it is enjoyed. Look at verses 7 through 10. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. In verse 2, the preacher gave six comparisons to show us how comprehensive death's reach is. Here in these verses, he gives six commands that teach us how to enjoy the good things that God has given us. The first command is this, to be festive in your spirit. Verses 7 and 8. He says, drink your wine with a merry heart. Now, bread and wine formed a large part of the popular diet in the Bible. Just because your meal is this everyday meal... It doesn't mean that you shouldn't receive it with thanksgiving and with joy. Think about when Jesus thanked God for the young boy's lunch of a few cakes of bread and small fish, and then how that went to bless a multitude of people. No one should eat and drink just to maintain life, but receive it with joy and a merry heart. God means for his good gifts to be received with reverence and thanksgiving, and that they be enjoyed. Anyone who utilizes these gifts in this way is pleasing to God. Not only should people eat happy, but they should also dress happy. In verse 8, let your clothes be white all the time. Now, this is not a statement regarding the regularity of your laundry. A white garment has always symbolized purity, but in the East, it was also a symbol of joy. Such a garment would be worn on days of great festivals or at right? a marriage, a celebration. And the preacher's point is that one's clothing should convey joy. When you get dressed up for an occasion, don't you feel feel good about yourself, right? That feeling is conveyed to others also by your demeanor. Your positive outlook is contagious. You should dress happy, but then he also says you should smell happy. In verse 8, he says, never let oil be lacking on your head. Now, in the heat of the east, oil would be poured on the head to cool it, uh, or also you'd be perfumed in oil for festive occasions or as a symbol of joy. A pleasant aroma creates a positive mood. So we've had this great autumn candle in our house for the last few weeks, and it. Improves the mood. It's crazy, right, that something would be good. You know, you smell of dinner, bread baking in the oven. These things spark something within us. Now, who gave us that? Who, who gave us that ignition of smells that lead to, to joy and a sense of celebration or well-being? All of these things come from God. And so when we live in this way and celebration and enjoying these things, it it improves uh, our mood it improves our disposition, and these are how God has given us these means to enjoy simple things in life. Depression keeps you bound to your bed with no desire to care for yourself. Grief causes people to go about with hair unkempt and face unwashed. But joy can be expressed in a shining countenance of a spirit that celebrates and enjoys the gifts of God. Now, to summarize, the double counsel of this verse suggests that one should always be happy and cheerful, but you should also be joyous in your marriage. You should be joyous in your marriage. Verse 9, the preacher next commands us to enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life. The best way to travel through this life is in the company of a beloved spouse. It says that God gives us our spouse as an honor, as a comfort, as a reward. Christians, there should be a visible enjoyment of one another in marriage for the comfort and encouragement of one another, but also as a statement for those around us. Do any of you have a co-worker that's always like complaining about their spouse, right? Does that lift you up or bring you down? Like it's always discouraging, right? our children, our family, our friends, our co-workers, they should know that we love and enjoy our marriage because it's a gift from God. And to those of you who are not married, it's not a stretch to extend this counsel to other companions in life, that these loving relationships, they are gifts from God to be enjoyed, to be valued, uh, to be treasured. So be joyous in your marriage and also Be energetic in your work. Verse 10. Uh, Another principle for getting the maximum enjoyment out of life is this. Whatever your hand finds to do, by the use of your strength, do it. Now, the preacher has already told us about this, kind of, as Kevin says, these back doors to joy and enjoying these simple things. A man's God-given strength is to be used at every opportunity. An honest labor, it leads to self-respect. A kingdom work is even more gratifying. Time, however, is of the essence. Jesus says in John 9, 4, the hour will come when no man can work. So every opportunity to do good must be seized. Galatians six ten says, For there is no work, nor devising, nor knowledge, nor wisdom, and she where you are going at the end of... Um, ecclesiastes here now sheol in the old testament is the place of the dead severed from the body the spirit of man can no longer engage in the activities which are a normal part of living in this world those who are dead have no more work that they can do no plans no calculations knowledge to them is limited and their wisdom has come to an end Ecclesiastes and the Bible as a whole, they give a clear understanding that we should both be disciplined in our work, but we should also be joyful in our work because it is given to us as a gift for a time. Now, I skipped over one of the most important phrases in this section. Look at verse 7. It commands us towards enjoying these gifts in our life because God has already approved what you do. Now, this points back to Ecclesiastes 9.1, where we're reminded that God is the only one who knows the outcome of our deeds. One commentator says about this phrase, this is an almost Pauline touch. This is Paul talking here. It's the nearest the preacher comes to a doctrine of justification by faith. Man has but to receive contentment as God's gift. God will approve of him and his works. The believer is not struggling for acceptance because he's already accepted. We know that righteousness does not come by our own labor. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. The works that are accepted by God are those that are expressions of thanksgiving, and obedience to God, who has saved us by his grace. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. What Paul says there in Romans 12.1 is that because of God's mercies, we can then give everything that we have. To God. We can live our entire life in worship, whether we're enjoying a meal, time with people that we love. All of this can be done as worship and an offering to God. We worship God when we enjoy the simple gifts he gives us. A simple life in which work is done to achieve what is necessary for living and not out of competition or display. It can free us to do what we ought to do and what we like to do. The preacher's list in verses 7 through 9, it's a reminder that doing what we like can be a good thing. John Piper would say it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Reading these verses with Christian eyes, we see a fuller meaning to these commands. Did you notice this? It says, we're to eat and drink for God's glory now as we wait for sharing a meal with him face to face. We're to dress with joy until we stand with the crowds before the throne of God who are also clothed in white. We take joy in the anointing of the Holy Spirit given to us now. We enjoy the relationships of Christian community And we're supposed to be wholehearted in our work. The message from Ecclesiastes 9 this morning is this, right? Death is coming for everyone. Hope is available to the living. And life is meaningful when it's enjoyed. So I'd offer a few points of application this morning. The first one, we've already said it. Understand that one day you will die. My grandfather uh, passed away suddenly this July. And anytime there's death in our family and someone close to us, it causes us to pause and be reminded of the, the brevity of this life. It gives perspective. Psalm 90 tells us, uh, we, say, we pray, Teach us, Lord, to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. When we examine this, this reality that one day we will die, how does that affect the way you have conversations with people around you? How does that affect the way you, you spend time with your children, people that you love? What mo- motivates you? What are you trying to accomplish in your life? Those goals that you have, don't quit putting them off. If God's given you those passions and talents, pursue them because you don't get another chance. I'm called to live now in the present, because we have this perspective. This is unlike any any other creature that God has created, right? We don't have this presence, this looming sense of death. And yet it's given as a gift so that we would live every day to its fullest. Another point of application. You have one life to live, and God wants you to live it fully. We are called to live in the present right? To, to, this is when you can make choices. This is when you get to make decisions. You can't change the past. And God says that our plans and our goals, that those things are foolish, right? We have no control over what we want to happen. What we do have control over is what's right in front of you today. This is why Jesus commands us to, to live, live by faith in those moments, I've always been struck with the story of uh, Jesus uh, Jesus and Peter. Peter walking on water. Uh, what happens when Peter says, "You know, Lord, if it's you, then call to me and tell me to come to you. And so Jesus says, come. And Peter steps out of the boat, right? Takes that step in faith. I'm going to walk to Jesus. The problem came with that second step. So, the Moment by moment, we're given these opportunities to exercise faith in our life. And God is calling us to make those choices, those steps of faith, in the present. It's not about the plans that we can make, and it's not about what we've done in the past, but it is about the choices that we live in the moment in the present. Hebrews 3 would encourage us this way, Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart That turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. He's saying what the Christian life requires is perseverance in the moment, in the day. It also requires that. We encourage one another actively and regularly in the moment. So maybe today that means that you need to take the time to to call someone, send someone a message, write someone a letter. Just know that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed the next moment. We're challenged to, to live in the present now because this is when we can take those steps of faith. An unbelieving heart is one that lives with no regard for the importance of the present. It's always just a fanciful hope that it's going to be better one day. Or we're all caught up in the baggage of, of the past. A woe is me. This situation is just, there's, there's no way I can get past this. That's an unbelieving heart. A believing heart looks with hope to the future and lives with joy in the present. Lives with faith in the present. This last point, live with joy in this life and hope in the next. And I'll finish with this, just from Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Ecclesiastes this morning. He wants us to look very clearly knowing that death is inevitable and that's a good thing because we can take joy in the gifts that God has given us and we can live fully in the present. Pray with me now. Father, uh, as we come to your word, we just stand under your wisdom knowing that Given our choice, we wouldn't choose to talk about these things. Uh, We wouldn't choose to to talk about the realities of death, uh, the brevity of life. But Father, in your wisdom, you've given us the words, Ecclesiastes, words of Scripture that encourage us and command us to live fully in this life, receiving small things as gifts, recognizing that we, we don't we don't fully understand even ourselves and our actions, Father, but, but you do. So Father, help us today to trust that our actions, when lived um, as as gifts and with thankful hearts, that they will be done um, as approved by you. Father, we, we thank you that for the things that you give us, and let's pray that we all would value them, that we would also value uh, relationships with one another, that we would value our marriages, our families. Father, even as we enter into this season of thanksgiving, that we would be thankful and joyful in uh, receiving these, these small things in life. Father, help us to now go uh, out as your church, living out this truly and fully, so that people would would see the realities of the gospel, that there is clear, clear hope uh, for life, not just this life, but life after death through your son Jesus. We pray this in his name this morning. Amen.